Welcome to Scrum Dynamics. This is the podcast where we believe that you can slash your budget, shrink your timeline, mitigate technical risks, and have a lot more fun building Microsoft business applications that all your stakeholders will love by using the Scrum Agile Software Development Framework. Hi, I'm your host, Neil Benson. In this episode, I'm joined by two of my good friends, Gus Gonzalez and Joel Lindstrom. In fact, it's a special episode being simultaneously released on their podcasts as well. Gus Gonzalez is the CEO of Elevate Solutions in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's the host of the CRM MVP podcast. He's an eight-time Microsoft MVP award recipient and one of the most popular speakers on the conference circuit, sharing his knowledge of solution architecture and system administration. Joel Lindstrom is a principal architect at Hitachi Solutions from South Carolina and is the host of the CRM audio podcast. He's a 12-time MVP award recipient and also a popular speaker at conferences, sharing his expertise in Microsoft business applications. I recently asked Gus and Joel to join me on a call to discuss the role of a solution architect in business applications when teams are following an agile approach. In a traditional waterfall approach, an application architect receives the requirements specification that's the output from the requirements phase and produces a system design specification during the design phase and hands that document over to the development team to work from. But when you're using an agile approach, there is no analysis phase or design phase. Instead, we're continually refining requirements, creating designs just before we develop and test them so that they can be deployed into production. I asked Gus and Joel where the solution architect fit in an agile team. Listen in as we discuss that topic and lots of other agile architect topics in this episode. You'll find show notes for this episode on my website at customary.com slash 50. That's the word customer with a Y on the end, dot com slash 50. It includes all the links you'll need to connect with Gus and Joel, as well as a summary of the key learning points from this episode. I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of the Customary Academy students, both of which have achieved their professional Scrum Master certifications from scrum.org recently. Congratulations to Shazil Jawed, Functional Architect at PowerObjects in Melbourne, Australia, and Shiva Kumar Malhalingam, a Business Specialist also at PowerObjects in Adelaide in Australia. Well done to both of you, and thanks for being a part of the Customary Academy and our community. Joel and Gus, great to have you um, on, on a call together. It's been a long time since we caught up. I missed you at MVP Summit, guys. Where were you? Yeah. I was there. I don't know about the rest of you. I was sitting there standing <laughs> for, for you, and you never showed up. Trying to avoid the coronavirus. Yeah, man, I, that was uh, a huge disappointment. You know, the MVP Summit, just like you guys, is one of those things that I look forward to, like, all year uh, going there. And, you know, it's the one conference that, Normally, we don't get to present, so you don't have to put together PowerPoint slides and demos and environments yeah. and all of that, number one. And number two, you're surrounded by a few dozen people that essentially love to do exactly what you love to do, which is working with Dynamics and Power Platform and all of that. And a lot of us have a lot of similar hobbies and stuff. So even when you talk about non-technical stuff, you get to you know hang out with a bunch of people that do the same stuff you do. So I, I personally love it. And Hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, and they already announced that next year is going to be virtual as well. But hopefully, this won't be a permanent thing. Hopefully, in 2022, we'll be back in person, but we'll see. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm really missing it. I'm, I'm joining a lot of you know, virtual summits and virtual conferences, and those are, those are great. But the real reason I go to conferences is not, not for the content. You can get most of that on YouTube, even at MVP Summit. But uh, you know, it's it's to meet the people, uh, meet meet the folks who I interact every day with on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and on email, and, and all the industry experts. So I'm really missing it. So good to have you. It'll uh, be back sometime. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, I, I could really do with your help. Um, I've had a couple of questions from people who have got you know architect roles or job titles, and they're really struggling to know how they fit into Microsoft business applications projects. And I was recording a piece for one of my training programs, and I came up with this concept of having an intrinsic architect and an extrinsic architect in an agile project. So an intrinsic architect is somebody who's part of the team, 
is there every day, who's maybe got some design expertise, but isn't responsible for the design because the whole team is, but they're providing advice, they're giving guidance, they're maybe uh, upskilling uh, more, uh, more junior people on the team, and they're really part of that team. Then there's an extrinsic architect who isn't full-time in the team, who maybe comes in for a couple of workshops, who's got some expertise in something the team doesn't know much about, and just participates briefly and then is, is gone again. And so I, I made this, distinguish, uh, this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic, but I'd love to get your take on, first of all, what do you think a, a solution architect is these days? What, what's our definition? Has that changed over the you know 10 years? And how do you seeing them being used in a traditional project versus a more agile approach? Um, love to get your thoughts. I think that you know the the main difference between me and Joel probably answering this question is that Joel works for a massive partner, right? And I have a I have a small practice. I, I do uh, implementations with a small team. So for me, a solution architect is someone who, in my opinion, is solely responsible for the success of the project. And the and what I mean by that is. In, for me, in order to implement an effective solution, that solution needs to be adopted by the users. Um, it's always interesting when I get to talk to other solution architects and other people about whether you, your project was successful. And people tend to think that, well, if I do everything that is in my document design or functional design document or whatever, if I finish this checklist, then it's successful and we get paid. But if your solution is not adopted by users, that probably means that it doesn't provide any business value to them. So. I mean, as a solution architect, do you really do your job? Uh, I don't think so. So to me, uh, being a solution architect is I'm responsible of delivering a solution that provides business value and the users will, will love working with it. So because of that, I think that I have to have a really broad level of knowledge, not just the technical knowledge, but also the knowledge about business, right? Uh, about what can I do with these business applications, which they don't necessarily have to be Microsoft. There's other tools out there as well, but how can they all work together in order to help this company get better at acquiring customers, at delivering the service they those customers bought from them and at keeping them you know, for life, essentially, uh, extending that relationship. So I love the idea of extrinsic and intrinsic architects. Uh, I use them all the time. If I'm in a project where I need, let's say, a portal, I, I'm not a portal expert, so I love to be able to bring someone who can help me out design that piece. Maybe that runs in its own epic, and that solution architect will be the main solution architect on that specific one. But when you think about the overall project, uh, they are not involved from beginning to end. So I love that concept. I think it's a, it's really really valuable. Um, but I'm curious to hear what Joel thinks about what a solution architect is, because I, you know, for me, it's a it's a broader concept. Um, but I know that when you work for a massive organization, there's all kinds of solution architects. There's pre-sales. There's you know actual implementation solution architects. There's some that don't do any on the business side. Business analysts do that piece. So, what do you think, Joel? Yeah, I would. I agree with what you said, Gus, and it really there's commonalities between big projects and small projects and that I'll use the analogy of putting a puzzle together that uh, somebody uses a, a great analogy that, you know, you got the different developers and consultants working on say the red pieces, the blue pieces, the green pieces, you need somebody who's seeing overall, making sure all the pieces fit together. And that's where I think the architect fits in. And that's where uh, a couple, a couple of aspects of this, I see it break down and this would parallel if you look at fast track or the certifications like the MB400 versus the MB600, you've got the idea of the technical architect and then the solution architect, which is more the functional architect, more like what Gus was talking about. And the reality is that uh, I think the idea of the self-organizing agile team is great. And I've been on some projects that have been near that. I don't know if anybody ever really reaches that fully, but the idea is in most projects, you don't have all developers and consultants that are equal skill level. You've got junior resources, you've got senior resources. So part of that is making sure that that the people like the consultants and developers are being effective and meshing together. And that's not necessarily project management. That's more just resource, setting the resource schedule too, because you need somebody, if each person is 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 involved in one area of the project, you need an overall release plan. And that's where the person best 
best position for that is the architect. They should be the person that understands the whole process the best. They maybe don't go as deep into some areas, you know, so like, you know, Gus, you know, you used to work with Andy Popkin. I work with Andy Popkin now. He's much smarter than me in a lot of areas. But, uh, you know, there's things that he knows much deeper than I do. There's some things I know deeper than he does. And so that that pairing of somebody who's more technical and somebody who's more functional is good. The other thing is a lot of times where you've got a mixture of skill and seniority levels, you need somebody who is the alpha for meetings for when you have functionality reviews, you'll have the individual developers demoing their part, but you need to tie it together. A cohesive story The the project sponsor will want the one neck to choke. And sure that might be your executive sponsor, but it's also on the delivery team. The, the architect becomes kind of the face of that to the customer a lot of times. And that's where, again, I think what I try and do as an architect is empower the people on my team to be successful in doing what they're doing. I don't try and like micromanage or, or say you have to do it this way, but I do make sure we maintain consistent quality, make sure when we're creating things, we follow good naming conventions, make sure that what we deliver will actually work. And that's, I think the role of the architect, whether you're agile or whatever, but in some ways, a lot of aspects to me of the architect take on roles of the product owner from a functional standpoint. Right. Yeah, I've, I've seen that too. So the product owner has then got to have that business sense of what's needed and have that big picture perspective and then help the development team to understand that. I've seen certainly my agile development teams, the scum development teams, um, both having uh, development team members that have a you know, great design skills under that person who can lead a workshop, be responsible for the design and take it on. But at the same time, they're working with architects who are outside the team, maybe an enterprise architect who's responsible for a broader set of applications and standards and want to make sure everybody's using the right protocols for integration or the right documentation standards. Um, and and certainly in terms of documentation, um, I've seen uh, solution architects to deliver much less documentation in an agile project than a traditional project. Gus, do you think that, you know, functional design document is necessary today? I don't think so. I mean, I, but I, you know, I've never worked for a partner that is heavy in documentation to begin with. I think that if I, if I had evolved my career uh, on partners that are heavy into documentation, I would probably have a different opinion. I think that, you know, to me a lot more, there's a lot more value on, making sure that the people within the customer side can understand what they have and own it after I'm done with the implementation, that spending time on a functional design document or, or documentation, they can go back and read through it uh, just to see, you know, what some type of functionality does and try to understand it. I mean, I've, I've received documentation like that from customers that used to work for a partner that doesn't exist or that was acquired by another partner and that company cannot work with them because there's a conflict of interest. It happens a lot with big organizations like RSM or what happened with uh, Sonoma Partners, for example, when they went to uh, Ernst & Young, they had a lot of customers where they did like accounting and, and stuff like that, finance auditing, which that you know presents a conflict of interest, I guess, with the dynamic side. So they had to be, you know, sent somewhere else. So a lot of customers like that, when I get documentation, and documentation is great, um, but at the same time, it's hard to understand if you don't have someone on the inside that understands what you have. So there I am trying to understand what is it. And in a lot of cases, they have changed it along the way. So I'm trying to see what it is. It's like, oh yeah, we upgraded to UCI, but none of the documentation was updated. So um, in some cases, I think documentation is detrimental to understanding what you have and and in case you need to bring some of that external help. Yeah, wow. I never thought of it that way that it can be detrimental because it's so outdated. <laughs> it misleads you to what the reality actually is. I think there's a there's a medium point because we went when we went agile a few years ago, we went a vast string from the big I had a design document that was 60 pages long. And then you you go to there's next to no documentation, but that carries its own problems because there you don't have any proof of what you talked about at the beginning. And, you know, the customer might, might 
remember something and the fact that it was in the architect's head but wasn't documented in any way uh, can be a problem. So what we've gone to, and we've, we're now a fast track ready partner, so which a number of other partners are, it's not a Hitachi only thing, but basically we've adopted some of the things that fast track does, which one of these things is a blueprint. And so we're calling it a blueprint too, which isn't a big document, but it's certain artifacts like a high level energy entity relationship diagram, things like a diagram of the security model, those types of things that, you know, I would say artifacts that aren't specific to one story, like we'll have user stories and we'll have acceptance criteria. And if it's user functionality or user observable functionality, that's, that's good. And that can be summarized in a document if people want to, but the artifacts around the design specifically of this is the entity relationship diagram. This is what we agreed to. For, I will make, you know, sometimes the DevOps wiki and do like uh, decision points that, again, artifacts that we want to preserve, like this is what we decided to do about contact sync filters. That way you've got some documentation without being document heavy. Yeah, I love that idea of, of the decisions. And that's what we do at the moment. We have a decision log. Um, we're using Jira to manage all of that. So we create a, a Jira decision. Um, we have different viewpoints weighing in on there, people adding comments. I think it should be A or B. Well, what about C? So that in a, in a couple of months or a couple of years to come, you've not only got the system that shows you, you know, this is what the design is, but you've got this decision register that says, this is why. Because you know, you know what? I look at something that Gus implemented a couple of years ago. I was like, what was he thinking? Well, you know, now he's got a record of it. Oh, you're not the only one. I look at stuff I implemented years ago, and I was like, what was I thinking when I did that? So it happens for sure. And it's 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 amazing with the with the rapid pace of change. You get to the end of a project, and somebody says, why didn't you tell me about this earlier? It wasn't there earlier. You know, we're using the custom help pane now. When we sold it to you, that didn't even exist. So now, you know, you can. <laughs> You, you just got to shit. But again, documenting what you know. And I would say, too, it's different depending on how big the project is. So that blueprint for, you know, say a three-week power app project is going to be probably an ERD and maybe one or two wireframes of a, of a mobile screen. Right. Where something like a typical sales, customer service, or especially field service is going to be bigger than that just because of the complexity is bigger. So we try and scale that based on based on you know where we are and we're trying to you know have a similar framework for both at least a framework that's the same across FNO uh, what we used to call CE Azure projects etc but the reality is they they actually look different but they have similar components in it that way so if somebody moves between or some projects if they have both FNO and CE and together in the same project they don't get vastly different deliverables CRM Audio is a roundtable-style discussion podcast about Power Platform and Dynamics 365. Since 2015, George Dubinsky, Sean Tabor, and Joel Lindstrom have discussed the ever-changing world of Microsoft business applications. Let me tell you, it's changed a bunch since 2015. I think our first episode was about the OneNote integration with Dynamics CRM 2015. It's been fun because we come from different perspectives. Sean and I are architects working mainly on large enterprise projects, and George is a developer in ISV. You can find us at CRM.audio or on any of the major podcast platforms. So you're taking an agile approach, but you're doing a little bit of upfront design, upfront documentation. How, where do you find that sweet spot between a little to keep you going and give you that big picture and, and too much that you end up designing something that's quite rigid whenever you actually know very little about the requirements at the outset of a project. That's the same thing I was thinking that, you know, when, how can you put together documentation in some cases when you haven't even engaged with the, um, the, the relevant, I guess, decision makers on a specific team that will be the one dictating how the functionality is going to look like. Now, you know, some of the information be, before you get started because, there was a contract that was signed and there was some agreement in place on, on what is it that you were you were going to be implementing. But in a lot of cases, the details and the, the way the, the workflow happens doesn't come until later. So it's pretty tough. I mean, one thing that, that I found is that we're pretty flexible with things like documentation. Depending on whether the customer wants more or less detail, we'll, we'll escalate, we'll, we'll move. I mean, I think that 
Um, that's one thing that I, I kind of put it up to the customers. The same with training. Like I, even though I love training, I love talking about dynamics. I don't offer myself to lead the training every time. I always tell the customer, look, I think that it will make more sense if it comes from you, not only that you will be able to provide real life examples that I cannot come up with, like you'll know exactly what customer, what situation, what, you know, they'll know exactly what to say. Um, whereas I'm not going to be able to do that stuff. But at the same time, in the future, as you hire more people, it will be great for someone to be able to train those people as well. So I'll support you. I'll help you put together the training documentation. We'll talk about how many sessions are worth it, how long, how we should, how would I tackle it. But I would prefer if you actually run it. But in some cases, customers are like, no, no, you need to do it. Okay, cool. I'll do it. I, I love training. I, I have no issue with that. So documentation is one of those things where depending on the customer. And in some cases, our customers have even taken it upon themselves. We have a customer right now who um, went to the UG Summit and actually stopped by the Click Learn booth and they fell in love with it. They were like, this thing is awesome. We're signing up immediately. And they use it heavily. Like they have hundreds of pages worth of documentation and screenshots and stuff like that. Um, they absolutely love it. They're using their online school that they have. Click Learn has like an online um learning system. They're all over that. So it, it typically changes from project to project. We don't have a, uh, a default set. I think that if we were talking about the way we like to implement dynamics, we do have one way that we like to do it and we don't switch that for customers. But when it comes to things like documentation, training, some of these external things that are also important for projects, we're still a little bit more flexible in those things. Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, ClickLearn, that's great for things like training materials too. So you're, you're not just creating dusty training materials and i you know i'm a fan of click learn because it lets you it lets you easily update that update the screenshots without rebuilding everything but as far as the documentation from the design what i like to do is capture the blueprint like the erd the erd and that level of documentation after the workshop when we have the user stories along with putting them in devops and then um, what what I like to do is, as we have in each story, the design for that story, some time for design, develop, and test within that, updating the documentation as part of each story. So if I'm working on the account entity and I'm adding five fields, I go to the wiki and I add five fields to the to the to that. If I add a new entity, um, you. Just, Fortunately, we got the XRM toolbox and and the uh, ERD generation tool and and Yonis's UML tool and things like that that make it super easy to just update a new diagram. And that kind of diagram, like the ERD, is very helpful. I found even for people testing the story because they want to know how the data relates to each other. So we're not building this big documentation where we have somebody just doing a you know eighty hour documentation task. We're spreading the documentation and the updating of the documentation throughout the the sprints and the stories, so that as we deliver it, we can keep that documentation up to date. And then at the end, if we just need to generate a new ERD, uh, we can do that. You know, I'm curious to hear Joel from you as well, and and I think this is what we talked about when we started this episode about the uh, internal external solution architecture, intrinsic extrinsic. I think you you call them now. How do you guys deal with that at Hitachi? Do you have the same team like from beginning to end in a project or are, are you guys more like people coming in and out depending on you know where you are at a stage and what's needed? So I can't talk for all architects because every project is different, but a lot of times the architect, well, we keep the architect involved throughout the project, but the reality is there's less architecting that needs to happen as you get towards the end of the project. It just It just is. And you've got maybe some developers developing some integrations. And the, you want to keep the architect. I found it's bad news if the architect is not not involved because the architect is a key factor for the project staying on the rails and not going outside of scope. Because, again, if you have all people who maybe are specialists in individual areas, you'll see scope creep and, and things that, you know, we are great to do and coming in through the agile process, you need somebody to be the referee that says politely, yes, we can do that, but that's going to require more budget and maybe more time. So that's where, that's where again, you want somebody to have enough skin in the game throughout the project. But the reality is if we're not designing anything, if we're 
if we're coming up to the end and we're you know squashing bugs and other things like that. Uh, from a budgetary perspective, the customers a lot of times aren't going to want to have you know a forty hour week architect, you know, but you want to keep them enough involved so that they can still stay interested and stay in charge of the direction of the project and raise a flag if it's going the wrong way. And also that's a lot of times where you're doing the in-depth knowledge transfer. We do knowledge transfer throughout the project, but you really get serious about it towards the end because that's when the admins realize, Hey, I'm going to have to manage these environments and things like that. For sure. And Neil, for you, it seems like you've been doing this for, for a while, you know, bringing intrinsic and extrinsic architects in, you know, the thing that I, I believe that scares me the most about doing this and not doing it like for a whole face, like when I do portals or when I do an integration or something like that, is the planning of the utilization of resources, right? How do you plan to bring someone, let's say, three months into a project, but then maybe something gets done faster and you can bring them in early or, you know, it delays like the data, the data migration always, you know, it's hard to predict when it's going to end because there's always issues and stuff and you needed someone after the data was in the system. How do you deal with resource utilization then when you need to bring people from the outside that might be involved in other projects, they might be used in, in multiple projects and not involved in just one. How do you plan for that? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Gus. And my experience has varied over my last two big enterprise projects, which are both multiple teams, multiple years, a big client where I'm, I'm deeply entrenched. Um, one was with um, a big Microsoft partner. And so when I think about the additional resources we had to bring in, most of those resources were under my control. I was the practice manager and we had the on-site scrum team, but then I could bring in additional resources with expertise as and when I needed them. And it was up to me to manage that schedule, pull them off another project for a week or two or a day or two um, and release them back again. Uh, and so I was always juggling that. Contrast that with my more recent experience over the last couple of years with one client, and we're just a bunch of freelance consultants. So we don't have a, a pool of talent inside our consulting organization. Where I need to pull people in is probably from the client organization or other third-party vendors, right? Somebody with um, experience in the Experian data quality solution. So I'll, I'll call Experian and, and try and pull some of their guys in. So it's working with third parties or internal IT experts. It's just a juggling game, man. It's part of the, the wonderful fun that we have as managing a practice. You know, you don't always get it right. You don't always get the resource, you know, the right resource at the right time. But you just got to make, make, make do with what you can get. Yeah, that's, I would say I'm kind of that guy that for I, I will be the intrinsic one on the project team, but I get pulled in as a resource on a lot of our projects for a single meeting or a series for dedicated to a specific point like ALM or dedicated towards, you know, something where maybe I'm filling a gap on the project. And to me, the way you do that is you, you equip that person with enough knowledge, but in some ways you can use that to your advantage because sometimes there's things politically that you as the intrinsic or the person on the, on the team can't say without ruffling feathers. But if you bring in Neil, who's the expert, kind of like what you do with scrum, Neil, you can, you can say things and say them tactfully, but in a way that's hard truth that if somebody on the team said, hey, you were doing it wrong, they would do that. And that's where, again, I think you can use that to your advantage as long as they stay in your lane. To me, it's fun because I don't carry the ongoing responsibility of ensuring the project, you know, but I can help make the project better. Yeah. Um, and I would say one, one other factor that I think good architects do is grow people on the on the project team. Because in some larger environments, you can have a stay in your lane mentality. You do this, this is all you do. And they never have a chance to go outside that. Where a good architect will give junior resources on the project opportunities to lead meetings, to lead discovery. Hey, this thing about the Outlook client we're doing, why don't you lead that? I'll be there. I'll be there if you need me and help build the, build the skill and the confidence. And I wouldn't be an architect today if people hadn't done that for me. So I would want the people I work with on my projects to be better than they were before that and be able to, because the reality is in this world that we live in, consultants a lot of times want to move up. Most people do. I've met a few that don't. They love what they do and that's great. They don't want any other responsibility. They get fulfillment from other parts of their lives. But for most people in a in a 
in a practice anyway, they want to advance in their careers. And so that's where, you know, good architect isn't the dictator that says my way, the highway and, you know, doesn't take, because I've got examples where we have, you know, junior uh, associate consultants that were brought in, great people, great work ethic. They're learning, some of them are, are learning very quickly, but I've learned things from them, such as I didn't know six months ago we had the auto the auto number field in dynamics. I, yeah, the, the auto number data type it just surprised me. I did I missed it when it came out, and I was suggesting the old fashioned way of doing it. And then they said, "Well, what's this thing called auto number?" I said, "You're crazy." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they must got, have had that this morning, right? Yeah, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's like when i found out the whole file system and i posted it on you know to the mvp so i'm like have you guys seen this and they're like yeah it's been there for like six months and i'm like what i haven't even seen this file uh you know data type but you know going back to the the conversation we were having it, you know what happens to me a lot is that you know like you neil i partner with other freelancers and stuff um and sometimes we've even you know looked at a prospect together and agreed on an approach and to work together in a, in a, in an implementation. But then the prospect took a couple months to secure funding or whatever it is or resources. And when they come back and said, okay, let's go ahead and do it. Then that other person I have worked with and maybe even visited the prospect, uh, you know, with it's no longer available or, you know, it happened to me, a prospect said, I think, I think we met, you know, we went to visit them. I went with a freelancer, which you guys know, but I, I went with a freelancer. We, we looked at their system. Okay. This is the project. We're good to go. Uh, we can start as soon as you can. And then it took him about two or three months to get started. And around November, they went back and said, I think we went around June there in November, they came and said, okay, we're ready to do it. When can you guys start? I reached out to, you know, my other freelancer and I was like, you know, can you start? And they said, no, I I'm booked to March. So uh, now I have to scramble to look to see who with similar, you know, skills is able to deliver that project with me or maybe have oversight, not a full, you know, uh, investment of time from the other freelancer. But can you oversight while this other team is delivering, you know, um, because they are available to do it. So it's interesting when, when you look at it that way. Now, I, I do want to bring something uh, interesting. I don't know if this happened to you. Hopefully it has because I want to hear the story. But has it ever happened that when you bring in a, a, a resource, it doesn't have to be a solution architect. It can be anybody, project manager, de developer. It doesn't matter. But has it ever happened that when they come in into one of those meetings or whatever it is just to help out in a project, they have mentioned something that it, they shouldn't have said or maybe you didn't know but they derail something. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a story that I heard recently from my best friend. He worked for a massive company. Uh, I won't say the name, but they, he worked for a massive company. He was brought in into a project for a bank. And when he came in and they, they, he's, a, he's like the worldwide expert in, in uh, virtualization technology, especially from Citrix. He used to work for Citrix. He, the guy is legit. So he was brought in and they were talking about this cloud solution with Citrix or whatever. And they asked him, okay, so what's your opinion on this? And he's like, oh, no, this is totally going to work as long as you guys have the, enough storage for all these, you know, stuff that you're trying to host. Let's just put it that way. And they're like, well, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, you're going to need like 40 terabytes to host all this stuff. And no one had mentioned that. The project was already signed for. Contracts had been signed for. Everything was ongoing. And then they realized they have to make an investment of like uh, whatever petabytes, it, it was a huge thing. It was a huge investment by this bank. And it, I mean, it went south very, very quick. At that point, he brought that up. No one in the project knew that. Like the other architects didn't know it was that bad. Um, but he just made that comment. And now the whole project is, you know, th there is some frustration from the customer, let's just say. And I think that's still ongoing because I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and that was still ongoing. So has it has anything happened to you guys like that? That someone came in and said something and can you share that? I'm trying to remember. I'm sure it's happened to me. I can't. But um, yeah, I think that's why I always try and get enough information. Or if I do have a situation where I'm brought in to give recommendations, I would I would try to bounce those off of the product team first. I do get a little little miffed when they say, when I bring something up, you know, power apps or whatever, and they say, oh no, we can't tell <laughs> anybody about that because that's just 
crazy because that's the way technology is going and you're just deluding yourself to think like oh we shouldn't bring up this new capacity storage that's happening next month or whatever because you're just sticking your head in the sand but real really realistically there are, might be something that there's something new that would do a better job but they can't do it yet so i would say yeah that is that is a risk bigger risk to me is the too many cooks issue where you know this is where if you ever have two or more architects on your project you need to watch out because i always joke with scott sewell that the reason i still get along with him is because we never had to work on the same project <laughs> three of us were on the same project or somebody said we should start you know mvp incorporated where all these independent mvps just work together and you know, the reality is many of us would hate each other because we're we're used to you know being the sheriff and you know what i've found is if i'm ever on a project and i've learned this because i've had architects i've been on a project with who uh, you know kind of ruined the relationship a little bit because you know we would come to the same conclusion but have different ways of getting there and so i always say let's set expectations let's say Who's doing what? Who's in charge of what? We can all be here. We can't all be in charge of the same thing. And if we do, we'll butt heads. You do field service. I'll do sales. That's great. You know, whatever. But we can't all be there because we'll be constantly, you know, we'll constantly be questioning each other's decisions and, and you know. Yeah, one interesting one that happened to me recently was um, I'm doing the CRM portion of this project that is ERP and CRM. They're using another partner for the ERP side, obviously I don't do that. So um, they, we were talking about the integration between the two. And my idea was to use Kingsway Soft, which I've seen integrated with that ERP platform a million times and it works very well. So because the CRM portion started working months before the ERP portion, we, you know, I started telling the customer that, hey, I think Kingsway Soft will be this. If you ask me my recommendation, I would recommend Kingsway Soft. But if you guys are using some integration technology already, just use whatever you have. They're like, no, we're not using anything. So we'll go with Kingsway Soft. Cool. Then this partner came in and they recommended Smart Connect. Like on a meeting that I wasn't involved, right? They brought it up again. You know, they started talking about ERP and they said, you know, these two have to be integrated. So the partner is like, Smart Connect, hands down. We have to do Smart Connect, right? <laughs> the partner started saying that. But they, the funny thing is that they just had hired uh, an MVP actually pretty recently. And the guy was coming to like the project. That was going to be his first project. And like in meeting number two, the guy comes in. And they're talking about the integration again after they set Smart Connect. And I had set Kingsway Soft, and the guy's like, Flow all day. We got to use Flow. So now it's like, you know, three <laughs> different uh, opinions on how this stuff gets done. And the partner is kind of in the middle, like, what, oh, what are we doing? <laughs> Which one are we using? <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that was, that was pretty funny because, again, you're getting people coming in and, you know, throwing the curveball in the middle of it. And, um, you know, everyone is confused. It's no different than if you're working with Fast Track on your project. You want to talk to them first, set expectations, so you don't step on each other's toes. Then that usually goes well. It's when you don't have that conversation that you know you can say something they don't agree with, or they can. But if you can talk to them first, say, "Here's what we're doing, and here's why we're doing it. What do you think?" and be open to that, then it's usually a harmonious uh, experience. I had some interesting stories working with Leon Tribe and Elena Grishenko, um, both from Sydney when we all three of us worked together, um, both much better architects than I am. Uh, Leon, much more of a, a functional background, so a great solution architect. Elena is technically gifted, a great technical architect. And Leon you know, has a, has a good sense of business and a good said bedside manner, I'd say. So he, he knows which buttons to push for the client and how to bring them along on a journey. Elena just calls it like she sees it every time. Very honest, very upfront, <laughs> very Ukrainian. And uh, yeah, that, that led to some interesting fireworks in the middle of some of our workshops sometimes. Um, <laughs> fond memories working with those two. Not, you know, we didn't always agree on what the right, uh, right solution was, whether it's going to be you know, Kingsway Soft or Flow for integration. It's never Flow, by the way. Um, so yeah, some in interesting debates in some of our meetings. Right. I think I think one of the interesting things now that we're all going through is what's the role of the architect in power platform deployments that aren't full dynamics, and it's it is different. Um, I still haven't come to the full answer with that. It's still needed, but it's 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 just a little bit different. Yeah, you know, I find where you know a lot of power apps you'll have a single 
developer developing, you know, one app. You might have four apps and have two or three developers. But still, I think you, the, the need for design is there, the need for best practices, the need for security when it comes to CDS, the governance. And a lot of times the admin, the architect is the closest conduit to the admin. Most well positioned to train the admin on being admin because if they understand their environment enough to work in their project and design the solution, I can I can transfer knowledge about how to do the care and feeding for it probably better than anybody right. else in the project. And I think it's part because a lot of us used to be admins. Like for me, I I was a CRM administrator for CRM 3.0 before I actually moved into being a whatever I I went to support side or technical lead. And then, you know, I made it to functional consultant and so on. So a lot of us came from that background. So it's like you said, I, I do think as well that the architects are really in a, in a really good position to train admins. I'm talking about the skills that architects need. Joel, you alluded there that a power platform architect skills need to be slightly different than in what I would consider, you know, a Dynamics 365 architect, where I never had to worry about the user interface too much. You know, model apps are, are very constrained in what you can do. You can introduce web resources and uh, PCF controls now, but with Canvas apps, you, you literally have a blank canvas and you can design the app to look however you want it to look. Architects coming from a Dynamics 365 background very rarely have any kind of UX or UI design skills. Do you see that changing? Are we Are we going to have to, as architects, are we going to have to learn those skills? Are we going to have to hire and promote more people with with a UI design skill set, I think um, how's that changing? Yeah, I think it is something that we need to pay more attention to, and and an architect that is coming from the dynamics background. But I think unified interface as well, because we've seen some terrible user experiences. And I'm I'm I was going through an upgrade recently, but literally their icons were a history of dynamics from 2011 to 365. They'd gone through each upgrade and had an icon left from each. So you had some of the Fisher-Price 2011 icons, some of the 2013 ones, which now look really grainy. And then you had some of the new ones. And so, yeah, what you learn about user experience will will, will be beneficial. I think that when transition from Power Platform to Dynamics, besides you know the difference in model versus Canvas, generally the data model becomes more complex. So that's where, again, you need to balance that. And you'll have some architects that are stronger in one or the other, and that's part of staffing projects of knowing who'd be the right fit for that. But yeah, I think if, I, if I'm an architect, I'm going to be learning about you know, UX best practices, learning about layout. And I think you'll find it'll, you'll see things you've been doing wrong, even within the constraints of the model driven app. But even remember, if you, if you don't know how to do Canvas apps, Canvas pages are coming, these frameworks are getting closer together. So you need to learn, you need to learn this. And uh, yeah, that's where I think you might so still have some people on your staff who are UX experts and get them to review your design and do that. But as far as the general flow of how the app will work and how it integrates, how it works with the data model, how data integrates with it, if you got data coming in, that's that's straight down what the architect does. I think we can have a whole episode about how do you guys see the usage of these technologies, like Canvas and model-driven, for example, because what I found is, for me at least, my best practice is to try to stay away from Canvas apps as much as possible, unless... I'm doing something that is very one task oriented. Like if I, if you are, let's say a realtor and you're going to properties and, you know, writing down how many bedrooms and bathrooms and square footage and taking pictures, you know, that that's your thing. That's all you do. Then I think a canvas app is great for that. And obviously if you're mobile, that contributes a lot to a canvas app. But if I'm doing something that requires a more complex, like you, Joel mentioned, uh, data, um, diagram and, and interaction. I think model driven is always my go-to. And the the issue that I found is, you know, some customers that get into Power Platform and love Canvas apps, and they are trying to solve every problem with a Canvas app. And because it becomes mm-hmm. their solution, then it's kind of like it doesn't matter how complex it gets. They always try to solve it with Canvas apps. So they write they write all this code. They they're trying to make it work. Like they're trying to justify it. Because, you know, you don't want uh, a boat that you build to sink. So you're trying to figure out a way to do it. And I've noticed in some projects that I've had some customers that say, 
you know, I think we should use Canvas app for this and, you know, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Or you guys go for it. And I'm like, you know, I really don't think Canvas apps is the right solution for this one. So again, I think we can do a whole episode about what, what makes you go one direction versus another. I'm interested to hear about, do you have some rules yeah. that will kind of say, this is Canvas all day, or this is model driven all day, or can I give you maybe some scenarios and see where you guys would go? Um, because I think some of them are, you know, pretty close and you could solve with either, you know? I think it's a false argument. I think for many customers, the answer is both. And I'll tell you why. You know, I will refer to you to uh, Microsoft has had several COVID related accelerators or solution examples. It's not the crisis communication. It's the other one, the response um, response accelerator it has a really good design pattern where They've got Canvas apps for the people at the facilities, counting the beds, counting the number of patients, you know, their PPE equipment, those task-specific stuff. But then you need, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from one of my clients, you need the cockpit. <laughs> you need the admin experience where you can enter in data quickly and view reports and view relationship-dense information. That's that. So the almost every Canvas app we've done has a corresponding admin model-driven app. And so it, it's a really good fit because if you send somebody like, like the Pepsi the Pepsi delivery guy out with um, you know, a model-driven app, it's way overkill if they just need to keep taking inventory of what's at the store. Whereas if you try and build use Canvas apps to build the full administrator suite, that's that that's not geared towards that. So that's where understanding that and especially I'm looking ahead six months to where they're not separate platforms so much as you have these controls that can be combined, you designing the right experience. So I would say, you know, I wouldn't say it as bluntly as you did, Gus, but I would say that the answer usually isn't just Canvas. Well, but I'm talking about separate personas, right? I think that when you think about the, the actual solution as a whole. So if I tell you, for example, hey, look, in our dynamic solution or power, you know, app solution, whatever we call it. We need the ability to track warranties. So when people buy devices from us, we need to give them the ability to track warranties, right? And mm -hmm. so so what is that? And, and you want your employees to do it because I guess you could say, well, a power portal will do that, allowing people to go in and track the warranties. But imagine your own employees are going to do that. So, you know, the, you can think about – if you think about just one persona, like the user actually entering the warranty information, do you give them a model-driven or do you give them a canvas? You're not going to use both. For that one person, no, you, you, now you're, but it would right. depends on what that user user needs to do. If you are the exactly. warranty administrator typing in all these warranties and associated with equipment, you would use model driven for that. If you are a guy in a field who needs to look up warranty information while you do you know, do a simple ticket or something, then can't yes. that. So it's 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 the experience. It's what it's the persona. Do. It's what connectors do they need? It's, you know, what's the experience supposed to be like? And so you could have split personas, though, because I can point to salespeople who are using the model-driven app when they're doing their their account planning. But then when they're on the go, they want quick notes, and they're they're whipping out a Canvas app to update notes quickly. So, I mean... See, I told you, this is a whole different episode. Yeah. I told you, we can talk about this for an hour. So <laughs> that's where that's where as the architect you need to not be so wed to one or the other so you can you can you can say this is the direction we should go hi guys my name is gus gonzalez i've been a microsoft mvp since 2012 and the host of the crm mvp podcast for three years the show focuses on topics rarely discussed openly within our industry and aims to share the things that I and other Microsoft MVPs have learned over the years working with Dynamics 365 and the Power Platform. One of the things that I love about the MVP Summit each year is that I get to spend a few days picking the brains of the world's greatest Dynamics 365 professionals, which includes the two industry veterans who I interact with in this episode. If you're not a listener of the CRM MVP podcast, stop by crmmvppodcast.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. There are over 100 hours of audio content waiting for you. See you there. So one of the architectural principles I try and encourage my teams to adopt is not to mix things up too much. Let me give you an example. If I need to do some form customization in a model app, I could probably use business rules for a lot of it. But you're going to run up to some 
requirement that can't be met with a business rule, and you might need to fall back to JavaScript. At that stage, I'd rather just do everything in JavaScript because support enhancements later on, somebody's going to have to figure out what's causing this UI customization. Uh, tear apart all the business rules. No, it's not in there. Ah, oh, hold on, there's a JS file. And then we tear into that as well and try and find where I need to make a change. That's really tough if you're using a combination of techniques. Same for should we use Flow or sort of Power Automate or, or classic workflows? We'll try and stick with one or the other. Um, should we use Flow or Logic Apps? Try and stick with one or the other. Try not to use a combination of both or be very clear about when, you're, when you've used one versus the other because it just makes support and maintenance uh, much more challenging later on. Any thoughts on that? But, but what you're talking about is, is to complete a specific task, right? Not to mix them up if you're completing a specific task. Like the customization is in one form, but when you think about the whole solution, you can't just do everything with just flow or you can't do everything with just workflows. You may need one or the other in the entirety of the of the solution. So if you're trying to accomplish something like, let's say, when we win an opportunity, a project should be created automatically and it should be assigned to the right you know, pro, uh, project manager based on the state where they're located or the region. You don't want that specific thing to rely on flow and workflows and a bunch of different you know, combination of things. Like I get it that the best practice would be, you know, let's just pick one, whatever meets the requirement and let's use flow to do that or let's use workflows to do that. Don't mix and match. But I think that doing it in a bigger scale you know, it's it's tough. I, I I don't know how you would be able to stick to one or the other. Yeah, I would. I think that's what you meant. I would I would agree in in principle within a tight area of the application. So, for example, JavaScript versus business rules. If we have an opportunity form that needs a lot of automation around, if it's this type, automatically associate this product with it and X Y Z. I wouldn't mix business rules and JavaScript on the same form. But if we have a simple show hide on the task form, I'm not saying that needs to be JavaScript because over here we use JavaScript. Um, I would say if it's if if it is clear, you know where it is, and that might be a good case for for documentation. Any place we use a plugin should have some kind of source code in the documentation high level high level with that. It, when, but I agree, I agree with you, Neil, that if you're if you're hiding and and showing taps, for example, which you can do with business rules you don't want to use business rules for fields, right? I mean, if you're going to if you're going to write a bunch of javascript to do tabs, just do fields too, you know? On the flow topic, um you also need to consider things like licensing and, you know, API calls and a number of different things that go into that because, you know, the reality is I get a pretty big bucket of flow executions part of my dynamics licensing. Where logic apps, you have to you have to um Pay per. So then also simpler rules. Do we really logic apps generally need a, more of a developer to do, even though they share a lot of commonalities. And so, you know, I would say I have mixed logic apps and flows within the same environment because again, we wanted to, we didn't want to have to pay an additional cost for each process. And also uh, because certain things we wanted to be more approachable from People are closer to citizen developers than 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 the developers. So that's where again I would I would take that into. But as a as a general rule, I'll give you an example. SLAs being associated with cases. You know, you there's the out of the box one where you can have the condition on the SLA, but then you can also, if you need more 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 advanced, you can use workflows to associate SLAs with without more right. routing rules. And I've seen environments that mix that together. That some of the SLAs are set via workflow, some of the SLAs are set automatically, and it's impossible to work work that out. So I agree with coming up with a standard approach for this is how we're going to do it. This is how routing rules too. You know. And, and that's where I try and consolidate that. So, you know, I'll see a junior consultant create a workflow that will do things that you could do with a routing rule where I won't put that in the workflow. I'll do up to that point and then know that the routing rules ought to make good because I want the the CS, the customer service manager to be able to tweak that rule without having to go edit the flow or the, or the workflow. So I'm, I'm thinking ahead of, how are the users going to administer this? How, when I'm gone or, or you know, somebody else is involved here, is this going to stay, stay together? Because I'll see junior consultants or junior architects do things that work, but they don't scale and they, they aren't sustainable. 
So Neil, when you have, let's say, we're we're talking about this JavaScript thing, you have 10 things that should happen in a form and nine of them are achievable with a business rule. Is your first thought to let's just write JavaScript for all 10 or is it let me talk this guy out of that number 10 that will mess it up for me so I can just do business rules and call it a day? So there's a couple of considerations and Joel's alluded to the first one, which is who's going to look after this? You know, does my customer have lots of developers in the IT shop um, that are going to be looking after this application? Or is it a you know, non-developer uh, personas, is it a system administrator or a sales operations analyst or somebody who just doesn't have the JavaScript skills, right? So in my current scenario, there's a lot of developers around in my team and in the, the customer's uh, IT department. So we're not afraid to use lots of JavaScript. And so we will tend to say, look, let, let's use JavaScript for all the UI customization. To Joel's point, we'll, we'll sometimes find a simple entity that really only has a couple of requirements and a business rule might be fine for it. But we try not to mix business rules and JavaScript on the same form or the same entity. There's a like with each other. You don't know what order they'll run in that's right. So that, that might mean we started out with business rules. And now we need to take the business rules and rewrite them as JavaScript so we can control the execution order and, and the sequence and have everything in one place. So we incur a little bit of technical debt if we need to revisit that decision for a given entity. Uh, we're at the point right now where we're let's just use JavaScript for all the UI customization because you know 90% of our UI customization is in JavaScript. And we've got patterns, we've got libraries, and we've got the skills. So let's just do it. Yeah, interesting approach. You know, I always, I always want to make sure people understand. You know, the long-term costs of their choices, and if they have something, because we've all seen people do really over-engineered forms where everything's moving around based on all all kinds of things. Most of the time, they come back five years later and rip that out because it irritates people, it makes the form load longer. So, you know, I think talking them out of it is a, is a good choice, but there comes a point where they say, no, we need this. But I've, I've done a number of configurations or a number of my project configurations that have very little form automation. You know, we're, we're using background like flows or real-time workflows when we, when we need, need things to happen. But uh, I'm just not a fan of a lot of, over excessive, you know, automatically make this move here, do that, because it just it just carries a, a debt with it. And yeah. the cleaner you can be, the faster your form will load. Absolutely. So how do you guys deal with and I, you know, uh, you get you can stop me if you if this is not super related to what we're talking about, but how do you deal? Because you just mentioned this, Joel, who says, unless the customer comes in and says, We absolutely need this, how do you deal when the customer says we absolutely need this, but you know it's not right for them or is going to be useless or they shouldn't get it because it's going to destroy performance or whatever it is. You as an architect, so you have the technical background, know that that's not the right move for them. But the customer here comes and says, we absolutely need this thing. How do you deal with those situations? The decision log can help because you can, you can document, you know, Neil Benson's recommendation and then customer decision. So you can have something to point back to. And there's, but what, but so you do it even though you know it's the wrong thing as long as you can document it. Well, I mean, if depends on what it is. I mean, if it's, I don't think it's a good idea, but you know, we it's not going to blow anything up. Yeah, I would do it if it's going to, uh, you know, if it's going to be an unsupported thing that'll break or or something. No, I wouldn't do it. But most of times, it's not that extreme. It's usually it's, uh, you know, I don't really like that approach to lead to lead management, but. You know what? If if that's what that's that's what you know you want, we got bud and we got budget for it, and it's not going to it's not going to blow up. It may not be as good as I think it could be. You know, I will I'll go ahead and do it if if that's what if we go through. I make my opinion known and I document my recommendation, and they say no, we needed to to do that way. Yeah, I would I would do it if it's if it's not going to break something. Interesting. I'll give you a couple of examples, Gus. Ten years ago. Yeah. I was working for a, a private equity fund manager called Color Capital, and their corporate colors were two different shades of green, um, and they wanted this CRM application to look like their SharePoint website, which was green. So uh, this is CRM 3.0, I think, back in the day. So we had to hack this CSS to make it look green. I was like, this is an unsupported customization. Please sign this get-out-of-jail-free card because I will need this someday when you come back and uh, you raise a support case <laughs> because it's no longer green. And so they forced us to do it. They paid us to do it. They were happy that it was unsupported and they took the risk. No problem. 
more recently, and this is a little tiny one, but a user um, wanted to record um, the type of um, vulnerability that a customer has, like a financial hardship or a physical disability or something. She wanted a checkbox. When you check the checkbox, the list of potential vulnerabilities would appear. Like, no, no, we just we just have the option set. That's it. And if there's a value in the option set, then the person has a has a vulnerability. That's it. You don't need a checkbox and an option set to record one thing. Like you don't have a checkbox saying first name. Yep, they have a first name, and then show the first name field. <laughs> We're not having too many checkboxes. Get rid of it. But I think you sometimes we can have a uh, what what do you call the thing where you you have a, you don't see reality? I'm trying to think of what this. They always accuse Steve Jobs of having this, the distortion field, the reality field. Yeah. And in, in if your job is just deploying dynamics or business applications and you're not an active user of it, you need to be able to put yourselves in the user's shoes because I have had cases where I have a quote-unquote best practice. Anybody who tells you their best practices are lying, best practices are basically my opinion and what I think is good. You know, whether it's, you know, whether it's good or, or not, it's just what I, my favorite, my thing to do. Um, but I've had things where I had best practices that once I put, took my reality distortion field down and actually sat down in the call center and watched how they worked, I realized why they were asking it. And then I, I become a little bit more flexible on those things because yeah, sure, from a data model, it might be cleaner to do it one way. That's where, again, I see, I hear a lot of people kind of scoff at the multi-select option set because they think, oh, you know, it's not as, if, if I'm doing a report, I like it to be a clean, like a many-to-many -many relationship. But you got to understand from a user perspective, if I can see all the values in one field and show it on a view, that is huge. And so I need to be a little bit more flexible. Still tell them, here's the potential downside to it. But when it comes to, they're paying me to do it and it's it's legal and it's not going to break anything, then I'm going to do it. Interesting. I, I feel like I have, I, I have a lot less chill than you guys when it comes to being a, a, a solution architect, because the one thing that I like to do when I start projects is I tell them, look, I'm going to do whatever you guys ask me to do, as long as it meets one condition, which is you need to explain to me how whatever you're asking will help the company get better at acquiring companies or acquiring business, get better at delivering the products they buy from us, or get better at keeping them as customers. If your request does not meet at least one of those three things, we're not going to do it. Like that is the only rule. Um, and man, since I've been doing this thing, since essentially I started the company back in 2014, I rarely get weird requests. Like they just want to do something because we need to get it. Uh, and I think because the customer agrees upfront to the rule saying like, that makes total sense. We're not going to add complexity to a system just for the sake of adding complexity. It needs to have a business value associated with it. Every single customer signs off on that. So when someone comes in and says, you know, I want to have the SharePoint documents right in the form. I don't want to be, I don't want to have to click on another tab. I don't want to click on related and go to documents. I want it right here. Make it happen. Then I just ask, okay, how is that going to help us get more customers? How is that going to help us? Now what you say is good news. We have a, we have a file attribute type. Right. Exactly. It's full circle, right? Back to the file attribute type. But I, I'm just saying there are some requests like that that are, you know, you to your is your point going to help them do that better than their point? I, I don't know. What do you mean? Well, like if if they're arguing that they want to have, you know, do something to make the process flow automatically go to the next step when this happens, you know, arguably by having more people adopt the system, they'll be closer to getting that goal met. And if that's going to, you know, you, and it's part of its industries you work with, financial services are legendary for being overpaid babies that need to have, you know, things every do everything for them automatically, or they just use the system. No, but I think I think you can make I, I think you can make a case on, on the example that you provided and said, look, we want this automation of the business process flow because one thing that we've noticed in the past, the people don't click to the next stage, and then the timing and capturing the timing we spend in every stage is all messed up and we're unable to detect bottlenecks and customers get unhappy because we have bottlenecks. I get it. That is a direct relationship between that piece of functionality and business. And that makes total sense. But there are some requests that are just straight up will cause zero difference 
uh, in you know, the business results of the company and what my solution will do. So for me, the most effective solution is any solution that all its moving parts are going to help the company get better at one of those three things, or hopefully right. one more than one of those three things. Anything else right. beyond that is just noise, is, you know, causing performance issues, more complexity, more things to maintain, more things that can break after an upgrade. So I try to avoid all those things. Well, I'll give, I'll give you an example. And I think this is, there's certain types of deployments where people have to use the system. So a call center, that's the system you track the cases in. You have to use the system. Whereas if you are certain types of salespeople or certain in insurance, certain agents, if they're successful, they're not going to get fired for not using the system. And you need to have adoption to have a successful deployment to drive the goals to justify spending the money in the system. So what I had recently was generating a document um we were using flow because you know we were creating it to a pdf and user feedback was clicking the flow button to run the on selected record flow a it was slow it is. and b it was confusing to them because they didn't understand okay i want to get the account the, the account application form why am i clicking a button that says flow so you know, we elected to create a button that would call a process because it was it was viewed as critical for adoption of the system because otherwise they had alternate ways they could get the old paper form out and use that. And it was it was viewed as critical enough that some people would do that. So arguably, you know, that's something where other things that are, you know, especially if we're out of time or budget and it's the end and it's something that isn't going to impact it. Yeah, we'll. I would say, yeah, you need to use common sense, but if but you need to put yourself, you know, as an architect at times, I have made, you know, you, you start answering the question before you hear the question asked. That's when it's a warning sign that, you know, you're maybe a little bit too important in your mind and you need to put yourselves in their, in their shoes and really think through. And then at least when you say no, you can say it in an empathetic manner and maybe give them an alternative suggestion that, well, it's not exactly what they want. It gets close to understanding the root of why they're asking for it, which might not be that whole automation thing. It might not really be automation. It might be, it takes too many dang clicks to get to here. So let's find another way to maybe we cut one of the stages out or make it a branching flow. So you don't see all four stages. You see two, unless it's a certain type. Yeah, there's other ways to get there, but it's understanding where they are and then you know, being able to empathetically say, here's here's what I suggest. Because I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but I can bring it back to the, the agile approach, which was uh, the, the reason I dragged you onto the call in the first place. And we'll wrap up in a second. Determining what the value is from that feature is, to me, the product owner's job. And the solution architect should present some options, should question the value that the organization is going to get from that uh, user story being satisfied. But if the product owner tells me that's what we're going to have and here's the value from it, then I'll take that and I'll implement it. Uh, we'll have that debate, certainly, but uh, it's their decision at the end of the day. And maybe I, I rely less on my solution architect to, to carry that burden and, and I put that burden back on the product. And, and let's let's be honest. Sometimes it's architect laziness. I've already put a lot of work in this. I'm sick of this feature. I want to move on. And so I don't want to do this, even though we got time and budget. I, I'm, I want to be done with this. So, you know, this is the best practice. Let's move on. This you know, the, that's, that's yeah, great. this is the MVP best practice, right? You throw that in there. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Gaston, Joe, it's been fantastic catching up with you. Thanks very much for jumping in this call and helping me think through some of the, you know, my, my thoughts related to architects on agile projects and all the other discussion we had. It went in lots of different directions. That was awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to Gus and Joe. I really appreciate your insights, guys, on architects in Agile projects. If you'd like to find out more about the benefits of an Agile approach to your business applications, I have a free mini course available. It's called Agile Foundations for Microsoft Business Apps. It takes about an hour, and you'll learn how and why I started using Scrum, and the basics of the Scrum framework, and how you can achieve your Scrum certification. You can join for free at customary.com foundations. And remember, you can also find the show notes on my website, customary.com slash 50, that's five zero. I'll see you next time. Until then, keep sprinting. Bye for now.